Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast I'm introducing right now. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I don't need no nicknames. Okay. And uh, this week <laughs> on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases, Free Guy, which is uh, about a guy. Uh, in- indeed. It's about a character named Guy. Neat. And we'll uh, get into that. We've got uh, Don't Breathe 2, uh, not spelled T-O-O. Bit of a missed opportunity. Should have been. Uh, the new film Days, D-A-Y-S. Uh, the new film Raging Fire. And the new film Coda. They're all new films, I suppose. We do review older films, but that's on different podcasts. Different podcasts, which mm. uh, we, we ran a poll recently. And uh, because we were, we were talking about that show. And it's called The Streaming Club. But we accidentally called it Critically Reclaimed. Mm. on a recent podcast and we asked if we, <laughs> we should change the title. We might have to change the title of that one because that's too good an idea to Pe- pass up. People like that title. We might have to do it. <laughs> we might have to do it, but uh, we have yet to make the final call. In any case, Whitney, you had a bit of a vacation. That's why we had a bit of a weird schedule the last I, week. I did, yeah. How are you uh, doing? Th- thanks for your patience, dear listeners. Uh, rested, thank you. Good. Uh, my family and I, we, we broadcast out of Los Angeles and my family and I took a drive to Big Bear. Uh, the great thing about living in Southern California is you can drive two hours in any, any direction and have completely different uh, weather biomes to yeah. exist in. So we were out on a lake in the woods, mm. just two hours outside of L.A. Yeah, uh, and it was very nice. There's it was no very, uh, very there's, remote. Not a lot of people. Were you, were you high enough that there was any snow, or was it just? Uh... Well, I mean, we we're going in August, so there wouldn't be snow anyway. But uh, okay, well, it depends. You can go like really, but really there are tall. there are ski slopes up there. During the summer, they turn the ski slopes into alpine slides. Uh, which were a big part of my childhood. I loved alpine slides. That's fun. Did you ever go on an alpine slide? No, I have no idea what you're talking about. They're a big, big, like wide concrete half pipes. And you get on these, like, they're sort of like, it's not an, it's sort of like a skateboard. It's got wheels on the bottom, but it's got this big sort of fiberglass thing. You sit in and a little handle in the middle. Oh. And that's your brake, and that's the only means of control you Does have. Does it actually work, that brake? Could you, like, stop on a dime? Or? Uh, oh, goodness, no. <laughs> it's incredibly dangerous, and you get scraped up, and you fly off the track. Yeah, it was it was wonderful, dangerous childhood rite of passage. Yeah, that's a hard pass for me. No, oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah, but I'm glad you had fun. Mm. Somebody out there knows what I'm talking about when I'm describing Alpine Slides. Yeah, Whitney left me in L.A. to work, and uh, you know what? Maybe I'll take a couple of days off. People have been telling me I should. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We took we took a short vacation in June, but it was a work vacation. We were doing research for a project, so it wasn't so really like, a vacation. No, probably. I think I might need to take a few days off in the nearest future. And some people mm. were just like, "Hey, you could just like not post podcasts." And I'm like, "That's crazy time." Wait, what? What are you talking about? But uh, what we may do is maybe for a few days or a week, uh, we might post some classic episodes and maybe even unlock some of our Patreon content. If there we do you go. That. that way, we can have some new stuff for people, or at least you know, must see TV. If you haven't seen it, it's new to you. Uh, kind of vibes, but um, and we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But that's that's neither here nor there. You're not here to listen to us talk shop. You're here to listen to us talk movies. I hope because if you're here to listen to us talk shop, that is over because we got to review some films. Uh, we, we this is another one of those weird weeks where neither of us saw the same things. No, so we'll be taking turns. Yeah, uh, but uh, let's start with the movie that ended up being the biggest film of the weekend, at least at the box office, as far as that's mm. concerned. Uh, and this is a film that I've seen advertised since the dawn of time. 
This is one of those films that, uh, yeah, they were advertising for a long time. Uh, it, it was supposed pushed. to come out like right around the time of the quarantine hit, yeah, and then just push, kept getting pushed, push and pushed it back, and pushed it back, and pushed it back. Yeah, um, so I've been I've been seeing it advertised for yeah. at least a solid year and a half, two years. Um, but uh, yeah, it's called Free Guy. Uh, Free Guy is the latest film from director Sean Levy. Uh, Sean Levy is one of those uh, sort of Hollywood workmen who will just sort of take the job, but will occasionally come out with something that's actually a little bit notable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sean Levy Levy directed the remake of The Pink Panther, which is pretty good, actually. Especially considering Uh, how many of the later Pink Panther movies really lowered the bar. Yeah, I mean... The the last three or four, like, proper Pink Panther movies... At least two-thirds of those movies are just abysmal. There's, there's like, three or four good ones. Yeah, but, Uh, uh, yeah, that first Steve Martin movie, the mm. second one's got some funny jokes, but that first one's quite funny. It's it's a solid film. Yeah. Um, Sean Levy also did films like uh, This Is Where I Leave You and The uh, Internship, yeah, uh, Big Fat Liar, uh, Cheaper Cheap, by the Dozen. Um, I, I haven't it, I haven't seen the, the Night at the Museum films. I've heard they're quite good, but I don't know. Um, I, the Cheaper by the Dozen phenomenon really weirds me out because now they're like I hear they're like rebooting it and again? they're changing the plot around. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it was a biopic, right? <laughs> the original Cheaper by the Dozen was about an actual family mm. and how they like the the dad was like this um expert in like um uh what, like what's the word like efficiency expert okay and he would go around the world like giving lectures on like how to like improve efficiency and how to live a very structured life while his own life he had a dozen kids and that leads to a lot of chaos and it's actually a really good movie and I'm like you remade it and you set it in the present day has there ever been a biopic that was rebooted into a new timeline <laughs> with a totally different cast I've never Ooh, seen that that's before that's actually a good question if they've like updated a biopic like that yeah I, I, um, I mean like, I but, guess like uh, young Einstein kind of but like that's <laughs> like the only one I could think of um Sean Levy also directed a really fun Amblin-esque science fiction film called Real Steel. Yeah. Uh, which is about Rock'em Sock. It was essentially Rock'em Sock'em Robots, the movie, about mm. a little kid who uh, f- comes into possession of a sparring robot because in the future, this is the most popular sport is boxing robots. Uh-huh. And uh, you can put on like m- match movement suits to control the robots. It's very video game-like. Yeah. Uh, it's light. It's silly. It doesn't really deal with like questions of AI, which it kind of brushes up very gently against. The implication is that if this had turned into a franchise, they would have gone there, but they're not. One of the things I like about that movie is it's not super concerned with world building. The pieces are there if they want to pick them up later, but it tells its own story, Mm. and it's a story about a has-been robot fighter who bonds with his son over a junky robot that happens to keep winning these boxing matches, and it's it's this underdog robot... That's a good movie. I will go to bat for that movie. I know some people are like, yeah, the original story is a lot more hardcore. I don't give a shit. This re- this this adaptation is its own thing and it's a blast. Mm-hmm. And if that that's one of those movies, if that movie came out in 1985, People would be in love with that yeah, movie. Well, like, people would have action figures of that movie. There'd be Funko Pops. It'd be getting rebooted with Hugh Jackman. I, I, I call yeah, like I called it Amblin esque. It's, it's yeah. clearly like a throwback to yeah that that sort of eighties era of playful Spielbergian science fiction. Right. But you're right. Like and, he uh, makes all of these comedies, which are hit and miss, and then he just knocked that sci fi thing yeah. out of the park. Um, he should stick with that because Free Guy is also pretty good. Nice. Um, 
It is also kind of Amblin-esque. It's light and playful. It brushes gently against sort of deeper concepts, almost frustratingly so. Uh, and it's, you know, pretty Frustrating fun. that it does or frustrating that it doesn't that it, do it, it enough? It doesn't do it enough. Ah. Um, so we open in a place called Free City where uh, everybody in sunglasses is... Uh, just a super badass who blows up buildings and steals cars and does whatever they want. And uh, Guy, played by Ryan Reynolds, is a guy in a blue shirt who works at a bank that is held up three times a day. Right. And the world is constantly exploding in violence, but he's actually very upbeat. It's very much like the Lego movie in that regard. I, I got that uh, vibe from yeah. the trailer every time. He's walking around the thing and he's like, everything is awesome today. And uh-huh. and I'm just going to get dragged into a storyline even though I'm just like a cog in the machine. Yeah, uh, It turns out he is a literal cog in a machine. Mm. Uh, Guy is an NPC uh, in a broad, multi, massive multiplayer online video game. And when we cut out to the real world, we find that there are... Uh, the designer, played by Taika Waititi, hmm. is trying to figure out what's going on with this glitching AI. Now, uh, as it turns out, Guy is developing his own, very slowly developing his own consciousness. Mm-hmm. NPC, uh, and by the way, stands for non-player, non-player character. character yeah. any, any character in a video game you can't control, that's an NPC. Mm-hmm. They're controlled by whoever programmed the, yeah. the, and, the uh, game. And it... it as it turns out, uh, this guy character is part of some broader scheme out in the real world uh, to steal somebody else's um, uh, constructed AI program and layer it into Free City. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's all this uh, shenanigans going on in the real world about these two programmers, uh, one of whom is played by uh, Future Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me look up her name. Um, uh, Jodie Comer is her name. And she well, is... I think she's already a TV star. Okay, yeah, I think um, she's on Killing Eve. That that movie that that show is huge. She's great in this. Okay. She uh, because she plays uh, a character named Molotov Girl in the game, and then somebody very different in the real world. And uh, she plays both parts incredibly well. Uh, she just has a lot of, of presence and a lot of confidence. And uh, Guy sees Molotov Girl, and that's the sort of thing that that sparks off his uh, breaking from the routine and starting to grow. And she explains to him that she, thinking that he's a real person. Thinks he needs to level up in the game before he can help her do her story. Mm-hmm. And uh, he decides to level up in the game by not committing crimes, by like helping people and stealing their guns and returning okay. money. And that gets him leveling up in there's the game. A, there's a term for that. It's uh, like called a pacifist run or something like that. Like, okay. can you beat Fallout 4 without okay. hurting anybody? Right. Which it's is possible, another, but really hard. It's another another challenge you can add to the video game. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, as, and... The plots continue to thicken, and uh, you know it all ends up as a race against the clock to find some hidden code within the video game as the video game is being rewritten around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Guy begins talking to the other NPCs in the game, and they also start developing their own consciousnesses. So it's like a uh, little bit of Tron Legacy, a little bit of Tron little Legacy, bit of Loading Ready Run. There's, oh, yeah, sorry, there's not literally Ready Player One. Ready, sorry. Ready Player One. A yeah. uh, little bit of Tron Legacy, a little bit of Lego Movie. Uh, Ryan Reynolds is a charming AF and he carries this movie a great deal of the way yeah. because Guy is such this like unbear- unbearably optimistic character and he's just fun to watch. And Ryan Reynolds has a, a little bit of you know his usual sardonic tone that carries it along a, a lot. Um, it is frustrating, though, because this is dealing with some pretty big ideas in yeah. terms of like the origin of artificial consciousness, what this the actual moral implications of that might be. 
where it's coming from, how video games are being used as this new means of creating life. And they don't go into the Star Trek questions, unfortunately, where they talk about, you know, emergent properties and all the rest. It's more just a fun adventure flick. It can be fun for a movie to ask those questions and let the audience deal with it. Mm. Um, I mean, like, it looks looks like Total Recall, where it, like, addresses the ideas, but it never actually comes down hard on them and lets you draw your own conclusions. There there are several scenes devoted to, you know, what is this? Is this reality? And then it ends on a very ambiguous note, Total Recall. Yeah. As to, you know, what what reality are we standing at at the end of the movie? They don't actually make that that 100% clear in that film, and I I appreciate that. Uh, This is a little bit more of a kid-friendly version. Right. there are uh, appearances by some real life like YouTubers who kids oh. kids would know, but I wouldn't. Um, but yeah, the, cool. like like the people who comment on video games for a living. I I uh, so I know a few they, of those people, get, but man, uh, I gotta tell you, this, that's one of those things where I'm starting to feel really old. <laughs> like I look at yeah, YouTube celebrities, and like uh, I saw like um like this last New Year's, you know, but they didn't really have like a good ball drop, you know, like because mm. of the quarantine. Uh, so we watched like the YouTube like countdown to maybe we throw it on, mm. and it was like, oh, and here's this awesome celebrity who's got like a billion followers, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. Like, C- they seem 21 years old and C- with C- it, and C- I don't see C- C- Chewy 48. And, yeah, yeah I, it's like I, I'm starting to just get really pushed outside of the pop culture bubble and. Mm. Honestly, I'm kind of fine with it. Uh, I'm fine with it as well. That's, this, that's part this of is, it. You're, you can't stay on top of that it, shit forever. Is, you, you're just never. You're gonna. You're gonna fall by the wayside. If, audience, if you're listening to us and you're and you're smirking at us, it will happen to you <laughs> sooner or later. It might be not the exact same year or whatever mm. like that in your life, but eventually, in like your 30s somewhere, 40 at latest, you're gonna realize that there's just all this new shit, and you can catch up to it, and you can find out all about it, but it's not yours anymore. Uh-huh. This, it's just not this yours. Is, uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm uh, often feel quite pessimistic about the future of cinema Mm. because the future of entertainment, I I live with a six year old and his entertainment is those YouTubers, YouTubers who talk about video games. That's, that's, that's all he ever wants to watch. I try putting movies on and he turns Mm. them off. He doesn't like them. For me, that just feels so cyclical. I Mm. feel like a lot of what like YouTube television is now when people are watching this, it's a lot of didactic stuff. People talking to the camera, interacting like, Hey guys, that kind of thing. Like kind of like we do, but, uh, but I feel like that was what TV was more like in the fifties, and, yeah, e- and even, watch, and even uh, the way like they do like product placement now. It's like today's episode is brought to you by mm. SmackDown Cola or whatever the hell you're talking about. <laughs> That's what they used to do in the fifties. Mm. TV evolved. People got bored with it after a while. They got more ambitious and they got more narrative driven and it got a little mm, less well, just people talking at a desk. And I feel like that's bound to happen eventually. We're just we'll, going to move in a cycle. We'll see. We'll see where, where the future leaves us. But uh, mm. as, as it stands, this is very much trying to pander to the kiddies uh, mm. by including a lot of like YouTube sensations. Um there's uh, a cameo by uh, Terry Schwartz, who I used to work for at IGN. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> she, yeah, she I worked work there too. Yeah. yeah, she's moved on to a bigger and better things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's amazing. She's so really cool. She, she, has, a, she has a, a cameo in in Free Guy, uh, and yeah, th- this is all like trying to be uh, trying to address uh, video game language in a much more mainstream cinematic sort of way. Mm-hmm. Although it does take place in a world where a YouTube celebrities are bigger than movie stars. And yeah, and also and so many people become involved, like the whole world becomes involved in the fate of Guy, the Guy mm-hmm. character, 
And there's those sort of montages of like clips from around the world of people watching things on screens just to show that it's a worldwide phenomenon. So Mm. here's a a tiny village in Malaysia and they're all watching Ryan Reynolds like play this video game. And Mm. I'm not sure if like YouTube videos have reached that level of penetration to the point where it's being projected on the screen in uh, in uh, uh is there anything is there anything in, in it for anybody else? Like, mm-hmm. is there is like if guy wins, mm-hmm. this is a oh, good well, thing for the world, or at least gamers, or it, is it well, just it's, there? There, there are definitely some stakes, and yeah. um, it, it, I feel it takes a pretty deft touch, especially in uh, in this age of increased artificial intelligence and our comfort with machines, mm-hmm. to develop sympathy for uh, like a robot or an artificial character. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this film does that. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it makes us know that, let, lets us feel that this thing is alive. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is so, good. Yeah, I, think which is, I think that's which, a good yeah. idea. I, I, play a lot of, uh, I played a lot of video games mm-hmm. and like, I often like, I see people like just be really horrible and abusive and like Grand mm-hmm. Theft Auto. And I'm just like, that's a person crossing the street. I don't just want to beat them up indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. Like... Well, that's, seems, that's some people's outlet, I it suppose. Is, but I, th- not, I like the idea whether, whether or not of, that's I, healthy is still being debated. I like the idea of taking these characters who people just don't think twice about and mm. making them the center stage. I think that's a good idea for a movie. Um, there are a lot of um, references that I clearly did not get. They're oh. making references to video games that I'm not familiar with or do not play. I don't play online games. Uh-huh. Um, and anything, anything specific that came up that you were just like, oh, is, they like mm. say something about? Uh, Warcraft or they they refer Eve online or I think that that might have been mentioned. Okay. Yeah, they, they make reference to certain games that I'm not familiar with. Okay, just curious. But uh, you know, even as an outsider, I understood the world they were setting up and what was at stake within the game, and that the game is important to the people in this world. Um, right at the ends, they do this really horrendously baffling thing, which seems to have been a late. Ad- Edition mm. by the Disney purchase because this was made by Fox and was swept up in the Fox buyout. Right. Uh, and so Disney released it in her 20th Century Studios. It's just left over because uh, they didn't make it, but yeah. now it's in there. Or they didn't and, like initially plan it anyway. And then during a, a vital point in the movie, they make some pretty open open references to like Avengers and Star Wars movies mm-hmm. and it's death it's like oh. this is supposed to be like really kind of exciting and clever and it, this film has had a like a little bit of wit and a twinge of intelligence up until this point and yeah at that point it's just oh you're just gonna pander well, they, there's like I, there's like a minute where it's just they're gonna do nothing but pander did they I, I'm curious because <clears throat> once it hit that point it sounds mm. a lot like Ralph breaks the internet mm. which I actually quite like that movie I think that movie does a lot of really clever things with the internet mm. online gaming etc and there's a gag where they meet like they go to like the Disney hub of the internet yeah. and there's a bunch of stormtroopers there and uh, yeah, they, they meet it's... all the Disney princesses and it's a digression I find it amusing but uh, it is it's... a digression it, does it play differently than that or is it basically more of that no it's it's just as insufferable as that okay yeah I didn't like that portion of Ralph Breaks the Internet because okay. uh, it was it was clearly just Disney scratching its own back in front of me. It's like, I don't need to see you do that. You do that all the time. Do something witty. Okay. It, those Ralph movies are actually like kind of interesting and funny and different than a lot mm-hmm. of what they do. Yeah. So uh, so in the end, Free Guy. Good movie. Free guy. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty okay. good. Franchise? Do you think they're going to they, there'll be more of these or do you think that I'm, I'm, I'm asking oh, if, I'm asking if it feels uh, like they're setting it up. Does it feel like that or does it feel like a done in one? Kind of um, 
No, the, the, there's already been talk of, of making making more. This was... Uh, free guy. Free. They'll just call it free guy, too. Uh, oh, damn it. And my, my pitch set at 400 years uh, after the events of the first film. Nice. Uh, but... Uh, this film, I, I, I read an article like just on the way over here that this film has made more money uh, at the box office uh, than any other film since like the reopening of theaters. I, th- I think uh, maybe uh, Fast and Furious. I think they're no, a little I mean uh, that that is that is original. Uh, oh, like like, yeah, like original IP. Yeah, yeah like like not like, a, like all, all not these sequels, all these sequels. Yeah, yeah, all the sequels and remakes have been making plenty of money. But um, yeah, this is yeah. like. A, a pretty big deal in terms of like original ideas go. So, and mm. knowing the way Hollywood tends to operate, sure. They're going to put a stool down next to it and start milking. Uh, I'm honestly, I'm just happy. That's something that, mm. I mean, yeah, it's obviously it's bit derivative and there've been other things kind of like it, but mm. I just like that. There is something that isn't just a sequel or just a nostalgia cash in that is hitting. Mm. And, and I know everyone's looking at the box office like, Oh, there's something horribly wrong. Yeah. A fucking mm. pandemic. Well, and, the, you, every uh, single the, uh, box office like article mm-hmm. has a giant asterisk next to it right now because I see a lot of people trying to like disseminate or or discern or, or or try to analyze the box office like it's business as usual right now. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just yeah. Well, not. And, Suicide Squad isn't doing great. Yeah, it's on HBO Max. Okay, people are seeing it at home. The, the frustrating thing about the conversation is. Um, People tend to refer to certain films as being, well, it's the pandemic, it's an aberration, and other films as whatever, that was going to fail anyway. And this idea that certain films are destined to succeed or fail, it it feels like a fallacy to me. That's your narrative that you're projecting onto it. The the audience is speaking. The Suicide Squad, people are being very forgiving about that. Oh, it's a pandemic. Well, you should qualify every statement about the Suicide Squad. Nobody said anything like that about In the Heights. Which yeah. uh, they were like, if, oh, I guess people don't want this. Uh, now. Yeah, Fuck and now, now they're just saying people. Well, clearly people weren't going to see that anyway. It's, no, they're both failing. They're all bombs. Yeah, every film that's coming out right now is a bomb. Every film they're, they're, they were all films, meant to make more money than this. Films are too expensive. I mean, yeah, fr- generally, free, free Guy, you know, considered like quote a lesser release, mm-hmm. still cost 150 million to make, mm-hmm. uh, and. How, how much do you think Black Widow costs? Like two, oh, probably oh, prob- like three hundred. Probably million, at least yeah. two, at least two hundred. Yeah, and like probably huge. more when you factor in all the advertising. Yeah. That especially when they had they advertise yeah. it twice. And, you know, like and that big, sucks. Yeah. The big problem with something like Black Widow is that it fits into like this larger series that they're making. Uh-huh. So they have to release this before they release other things. Yeah. So they can't like Everything's rework on, it around. I think I think they had to like reshoot or add another scene or something to cat the cat uh sorry to the falcon and the winter soldier tv series because uh-huh. blackwood was supposed to have already come out and it was supposed to introduce a character who would show up on that show so, but yeah, now they made their first appearance in that show so they had to like rework mm-hmm. that a little bit so yeah, yeah. so they, they were in kind of in a rush they couldn't sit on that one a lot longer uh, a lot of films they uh, who knows what the studio is thinking when they want to release it a certain way and not another the point is all the studios are taking taking a bath on all of these. Pretty much. They uh, are all failing, essentially. Mm-hmm. They are all losing money. Pretty much. So trying to say that the Suicide Squad would have done better, whatever. We can make yeah. that spec we can speculate all that, we like. That's not where we are. The Suicide Squad lost money. Free Guy lost money. All of these movies are losing money. It doesn't matter if they have <coughs> vaguely impressive opening weekends. I will say this We're right now. We're not at the kind of level that they were designed to be. 
if Free Guy had come out when it was supposed to come out, it would have made less. I think you're right. <laughs> I think it would have changed. Now where they have to put it out now. They have to put it out there or, or never put it out, basically, yeah. at this point. So they're putting it out. The, the weird thing about, about the pandemic and this limited release schedule and all of these films losing money is we're getting a weirdly more diverse uh, sort of film uh, landscape. Yeah. Where it, you know, all it's not, of, it's not eight getting... different giant blockbusters every week. It's yeah. maybe one and then like a bunch of like weird mm. genre, which actually gives a good segue to the mm. next film we're reviewing. Uh, Don't Breathe 2, uh, which is a sequel to the 2016 Fede Alvarez film Don't Breathe, which... Is that, you, a, you, a wonderfully nasty little piece of work. That's a fucked up movie. <laughs> and it's a movie that knows I it, it a lot, yeah. It's a movie that knows it is. I know that some that movie takes some really, really harsh and dark turns. That some people, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it breaks the contract with the audience because it's already a fucked up movie, but it gets yeah, way more fucked up in the second half than you were ready for. And some people it turns off, but for me, it's like, yeah, it's dark. It's unpleasant. It's never saying it is pleasant. Mm-hmm. It's a thoroughly nasty motion picture, yeah, and I think it's a but, very effective one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's... It doesn't have any sort of supernatural elements, but it has horror elements, and oh, I, I would call it a horror movie. Oh, it's um, definitely a horror movie. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, uh, that first one took place in Detroit mm-hmm. in an abandoned neighborhood. There was only one house that was unabandoned in this neighborhood. Yeah. Some uh, enterprising house thieves break into the house, hoping mm-hmm. to rob it, uh, rob About, the, the blind old man who lives yeah, there. The, the thieves are a bunch of teenagers who mm-hmm. are just trying to get enough money to get out of this horrible dying town and make something of themselves. So there's something, they're doing the wrong thing, but they're not, like, evil. Yeah. They're just they're doing it they're, for sympathetic reasons. Yeah, and so when they they find out this old man has a lot of money because like his daughter had been killed in a car accident he's and got he a big got settlement. Yeah. yeah, so and he's keeping it and they hear he's keeping it in cash on the premises somewhere. So they break in to, to to steal it and then they find out that he's an ex Navy SEAL who has something to hide <laughs> and he will murder the shit out of them. And it turns into like they're almost like. It's almost like they're trapped in a house with a minotaur. Like it's a really, it's <laughs> yeah, a, and, it, and yeah. It, it is very labyrinthine. So yeah. that's a good. It's, uh, it's a lot of bravura filmmaking. Fede Alvarez really knows how to set the stage and like set up all of these visual elements and geography. They'll be really important later, but you'll know where everything is and where all like the tools of violence are going to be, and a lot of twists and turns in it. And it's a very, very effective but extremely malevolent, mm. arguably malignant shocker. But it's very, very good. Uh, the sequel, Don't Breathe 2, also uh, from the same writers. That's okay. uh, uh, written by Fede Alvarez and, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, R- Rodo Sayages. Uh, and, uh, but this time, Rodo Sayages is directing. Okay. So at the very least, it's like keeping it like in the, the it's not like it's completely changed hands and someone's going to take this a totally new direction. Um, it is eight years after the events of the first film. Which is weird because that was only five years ago, and I thought it was taking place in the present. So I don't know where we are anymore. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things like where um, Child's Play three came out one year after Child's Play two. Oh, but, but and Child's Play and, two Andy was play- Andy was like the, the main older. character. Yeah, is like something a decade older. So now all of a sudden we're in the early two thousands, and we're just not going to talk about that. That happens with the Friday the Thirteenth movies as well mm. because characters start aging really, really fast and. Like, by the time you hit, like, Jason Goes to Hell, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to take place in, like, 2010. Like, it's super <laughs> fucking weird. Um, 
But I think they, they, uh, they somebody did the math on the TV series Twenty Four because each oh, season yeah. had a new president. Yeah, so they had to sort of like fast forward through presidential terms. Yeah. So by the time they like get sometimes the, last the season, president like, like doesn't make years it through the their future. whole. Well, sometimes the president yeah. doesn't make it through their whole term because of events that happen in the series. So yeah. maybe it's not that bad, but it's still like <laughs> it's still like a ridiculous amount of time. Kiefer mm. um, Sutherland should have been played by Donald Sutherland in the last season. Oh, that, that would have been, been really great. Funny. Um, but uh, I digress. So it's eight years after the original uh, uh, film. Uh, and the uh, villain of the film, a uh, character played by Stephen Lang, his name is Nordstrom. Uh, who, who was in uh, Avatar. He was in Avatar. Mm-hmm. He was the original Freddie Lowndes in Manhunter. He's been around for a long, long time. Um, and he's and he's great. He's a really scary presence. Um, he has a new daughter. She is, I think, 10 or 11. Uh, she is played by... Oh, hold on. I have the wrong Don't Breathe. Up, uh, <laughs> you called up a little. little I brought up, I brought up the page so I could get the cast right, and I accidentally brought up "Don't Breathe" one. Uh, there's a, his uh, his new daughter is named Phoenix. She's played by an actress named Madeline Grace. He's teaching her survival skills, and he doesn't let her out very much. Um, turns out, skulking around the back alleys of Detroit, organ harvesters. Oh yes. We have rogue organ harvesters. They're kidnapping people. They're taking their organs. They're doing a whole bunch of bad stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Go on. <laughs> a bunch of guys break into their house. They're trying to kidnap the little girl. They don't know that they've broken into the wrong house because Stephen Lang starts fucking them up real bad. And then I, I don't really want to like go into all of the twists here, but I will say this. There's at least one twist here that I didn't see coming. And it does kind of recontextualize the film quite a bit. Mm. Uh, but there are some big reversals. Uh, and uh, the way that, you know, the organ harvesting thing kind of feels like a red herring for a while. Or maybe it is the most important plot point. Or maybe it's something else entirely is going on. But basically what happens is the little girl gets kidnapped. And now it's up to Stephen Lang to save her. Uh, here's the problem. If you've seen the original Don't Breathe, Stephen Lang is an unforgivable monster. Yeah, he, he does some really nasty things. Yeah, this isn't like like uh, Godzilla who's just being a giant lizard and you can kind of forgive Godzilla for like just being a giant lizard. It doesn't really have like plans or anything like that. Stephen Lang, Lang in the in the original movie, not not this character, not the guy. I'm sure Stephen Lang is very nice. Um, but he, like he, he plays heavies a lot. This, yeah, this villain Nordstrom, this villain that he plays, um, did something. It wasn't like a snap decision. They made a conscious, horrifying, evil decision to do horrifying evil things, which I will not recount here and ruin your day if you don't know what they are. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know what they are, and you know that there is there are things we can forgive. There are things we can overlook. There are also times when you can put like two bad guys in a movie, but one bad guy is demonstrably worse. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, Don't Breathe, uh-huh. where the protagonists are breaking and entering and stealing things. Those are not quote unquote good guys. But Stephen Lang is so much worse that you can have sympathy for those uh, for those poor thieves. Mm. Here, he might not be doing the most horrible things in this movie, but it takes place after the events of the first movie. We know he's already done them. And the movie is doing what it can to not pretend that those things didn't happen, but to suggest that maybe redemption is possible for this guy. Mm. And... 
at no point does the movie actually make a compelling case for that, hmm. which is frustrating. And I feel like as though they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They want him to be this kind of horrible anti-hero, but they also want to acknowledge that he's a monster. And they never find a good balance. Okay. They, they never there, find There's a way to do that. But yeah. <laughs> there is, but I don't know for this guy. Maybe I really don't. I don't. Based on what he's done, I oh. honestly don't think, hmm. you know, he can try, but I don't think he's ever going to win us back. So... He, well, the, you know. the idea of of follow. I mean, I've, I grew up during the golden age of slashers, yeah. so th- the idea of a horror series following the killer mm-hmm. uh, over his victims right. is is par for the course, uh, right. as far as I'm concerned. And every once in a while, they'll uh, actually turn like a villain into some kind of anti-hero. It's uncommon. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's that, been that's tried. What ha- it's what happened in the Puppet Master series. After a while, perfect those, example. Those puppets became like defenders of humanity rather right. than, against or, or, even more evil puppets. Godzilla is another good example yeah. right there. The original. Jira is a horror movie about a metaphor for nuclear devastation. Yeah, they, they never did that with um, uh, like Michael Myers or, or Jason Voorhees. No, well, uh, Jason Voorhees kind of in Freddy versus Jason because compared to Jason, mm-hmm. Freddy is more evil. Yeah. So in the end, Jason does, he's not a good guy, but you are kind of rooting for Jason in that no. final fight. I, I Are you? I, was, I uh, am. <laughs> okay. I am. I've, Jason, J- Jason, Jason does Jason's murder a, a bunch of people in that movie. Jason feels like a force of nature. Okay. Jason is a child mm-hmm. who was, uh, who was failed mm-hmm. by the adults and the, uh, at least the mature people in his life mm-hmm. and became this force of nature. He, Jason is a story, is a tragic tale. Okay. Jason is Jason should not have been turned into that. That's Whereas, sad. Whereas Fre- Freddy Krueger chose to be what he is, mm. and he continues to be what he is, and he is making very conscious decisions to be evil, and he yeah. doesn't have to. So for me, I, again, I think Jason is clearly the villain of his own franchise. But put them next to each other, Freddy is worse. <laughs> I suppose so. So that this is kind of uh, that situation here. I I guess, but um, yeah. If they had made maybe a few more sequels before they tried to go the anti-hero route, maybe, maybe it would be a little bit more palatable. Yeah, like Freddy, uh, Freddy, they made Freddy funny. You yeah, couldn't do yeah. that in Freddy Krueger 2, because mm. in the first one, we know he's a child murderer. Well, and and the, you know? those, are, those are not going for, uh, those are going more for scares. Yeah. Later on, the that uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street series is just wild. They're like amazingly the creative. Yeah. Uh, just in, in a good way, I think they're all over the place. Even the worst yeah, ones. Like, even the worst A Nightmare on Elm Street movie is still fun, at least like until a, you get to the remake. Yeah, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 is like has a lot of weird imaginative stuff and like almost no story whatsoever. It doesn't, I, I can't even follow it. I've that seen movie. that movie like three or four times. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what happens in it. Yeah. I could not tell you the plot of that movie for the life of me. I have no like, idea. I don't think there really is one. No, I don't think there is. But it was directed by Stephen Hopkins, who I like know. went on to do like bigger, bigger Hollywood project. Mm. Um, so oh, was yeah, that one the, Stephen Hopkins? Which one? Did, Rennie Harlan did four. Rennie Harlan did four. four. That's okay. I mixed them up. Yeah, okay. Chuck Russell did three. Okay. Like you, you, you got can tell, some, Chuck Russell did three. Yeah, they're uh, just the, the amount of talents. Like they got really interesting directors to make those uh, Friday. Yeah, the Rachel Talalay, Jack Talalay Shoulder, did, did number yeah. six. Uh, yeah, Jack Shoulder did two, two uh, yeah. and yeah, Wes Craven did one and seven. Uh, who directed any of the Jason films? Well, those are Sean Steve Miner. Cun- Steve Miner. Uh, those Steve are Minor. those are like Sean Cunningham's uh, babies. Ronnie, you did Freddy versus Jason. He's yeah. a, he's a prominent filmmaker, but uh, yeah, the Jason movies, the director is a little bit They're, more disposable. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Sean, Sean Cunningham is the, the executive producer of that yeah. series. Um, so, uh, can can the villain, can the killer? From I mean, don't breathe. He was such a monster. Yeah. Uh, not just in what he did, but the way he was depicted, the way he yeah. skulked around, and uh, how carefully they um, 
kept the camera away from him, tried to not make like at mm. first he was presented as like sympathetic. Yeah. But then they they did the big twist. They turned the tables on the, yeah. the home invaders. It turns out he's uh, this horrible killer with like army training mm-hmm. and he is doesn't come across as admirable at all. Yeah. So it's a little curious. Maybe there is a, a contingent of this film that admires the character in this weird sort of way. I, I'm watching this movie and mm. like there's parts of it that work. There's some good cinematography in here. All the actors are doing the best they can with the material. Um, there's stuff that fails miserably. The logic in this movie is out the door. Uh. There's this one bit in the movie where um, there's a bunch of meth dealers and okay. a lot of the plot revolves around these characters and their motivation is they're trying to deal more meth and they're going to these Horrific and unreasonable lengths mm. um, for the sake of one person. And the justification is, well, that person cooks our meth. So we have to do everything to keep them around or, or else we have no business. Mm. And I'm like, I've seen everything you've had to do over the course of this movie. Uh, there are other meth dealers. <laughs> there are other people who can cook meth. When you think about all of the people who cook meth... It can't be that hard to find someone who can cook meth. For the love of God, you are making it way too complicated. Like, eight of you have died today because you're committed to this meth cook. Come on! Get another meth cook! Like, there's a lot of, like, things like that that just don't track. You're describing something that could feel like a good chunk of sleazy fun. I know, it's not fun, though. There's Um, nothing... The original wasn't fun, either. hmm. It was entertaining, but it wasn't fun. Yeah. It was intense. This is going for that kind of the same thing, except now there's, like, a child in peril, too, so that adds this other layer of, like, uncomfort to... or discomfort to it. Um, But, um... Where was it going? With this? But, the, but I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, this is from the same people. This isn't like someone jumping onto the series and trying to turn it into something else, hmm. which has happened many times before in horror. This is the original writers. Hmm. One of the writers is now directing. Uh, it feels as though it's almost as though they're trying to like purge this character from their system. Hmm. Like we created this horrible monster and. Maybe we overdid it because now we can't turn it into a franchise where he's the hero. <laughs> and I'm like, did it ever occur to you to just make the franchise with him as the villain? Like, you could just yeah, keep so, him as the villain. Like some saps break into wherever he is yeah. in this movie. There's yeah. a million different things you could do. He travels or something mm. or whatever. Like there's there's other stuff you could do here where he's still the bad guy. And it feels like they're trying to redeem the character mm. in some way without pretending he isn't what he is. And unfortunately, they don't make a convincing case. Mm. They don't make a good argument. There's some cool bits in this, but the whole premise of the movie is now this guy's the protagonist and I want him to fail. Mm. I, I don't want the, the little girl to end up with the other monstrous kidnappers, but like I don't want like this guy to be like forgiven for what he's done. I don't mm. want that. At no point do I feel like he's earned that. It it feels like, and he doesn't, and it's not like it ends with him going, ha ha, I got away with everything and now everyone loves me. And like, it's not like that kind of weird Wayne's World make a happy ending. <laughs> but it does feel like the filmmakers are pretty eager to try to find a way to let this guy off the hook or at least forgive him or, you know, hmm. heal this part of their soul. And it's not convincing. Well, the, at the, all. The, the only way to uh, redeem him is you put him up against somebody who's even worse. Yeah. 
Like that, they have them do battle, and you you cheer for him as he kills off yeah. some other even more horrible. And I person. feel like that's what they were trying to do, but they failed because okay. ultimately, uh, and I, I, in order to explain this, I'd have to go into more detail. But um, ultimately, like spoilery detail, mm. and I don't want to ruin it for you. But um, ultimately, if you look at what the new bad guys are doing mm. and what Stephen Lang did in the first film, there's a lot of parallels. Okay, they're not that different. Okay, so. It's not like one of them is worse than the other. Just it's just v- everyone's shit. Well, <laughs> so like, yeah, and, and right, I guess right. if you just committed to that and just made it like completely irresponsible, mm-hmm. like if you'd done like the Devil's Rejects, where oh, everyone's just horrible and they're unapologetic about it, and that's just the universe we live in, I think maybe you could have gotten away with that. Is it like irresponsible fun? Is it responsible fun filmmaking? No, it's irresponsible filmmaking, but. It could at least be consistent within itself and may, could maybe be effective. But yeah, Don't Breathe 2 is, is I don't think it's good. I don't think it's a good movie. It's uh, uh, not not devoid of good bits, but I, it doesn't work. And I, that's very disappointing. Um, tell me about, uh, uh, what do we do? Tell me about Coda. Let's do that <laughs> okay, next. Okay, I don't want to, you want to talk about Siming Lang yet? Okay. Um, uh, no, 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 let's, let's save it for last. Okay. Um, people, I, I feel like we're doing the big stuff at the front and Coda. People have been talking about that since Sundance, where it won a bunch of awards. Yeah, it won a bunch of awards at Sundance. Uh, Coda is um, it's a remake of a, a film called uh, Le Family Bellier, which um, is a, a French film. Okay. I don't know. Uh, Coda stands for Child of Deaf Adults, uh, C-O-D-A. And it is about a, a young woman. She's a, a senior in high school. Uh, she's played by Amelia Jones. Amelia Jones is amazing in this film and Ooh. keep an eye on Amelia Jones. Uh, and she works it, uh, for her, her parents, her, her father and her older brother are, uh, fishermen. They live in Massachusetts and her mom, uh, is like helps out with the business as well. And, mm. uh, things are really, really bad for fishermen right now. They have to sell their fish to like intermediaries before they go to market. Mm. So, and the intermediaries are, underbidding them all the time and they're getting less and less money for their fish. So, uh, she, and she being the only one who can interpret, uh, her father's and her brother's sign, uh, has, has become an important, an integral part of like the family business of fishing. Right. Her true passion, irony of ironies is singing. She has a passion for music. She loves listening to music. Uh, and she uh, catches the eye of her, um, music teachers played by Eugenio Derbez. Okay. Uh, He's, he's a pretty fun actor. And he uh, is, is encouraging her to uh, not just aud- like audition for the school plays, but to start applying for scholarships and going to she's that arts good. college. Yeah. She's that she's good enough to go to arts college. Uh, so yeah, she's like on the cusp of making a very big decision in her life. Does she pursue her dream of singing, a dream that her parents are incapable of understanding mm-hmm. uh, to her eyes, or does she, uh, you know, give up on her own dream mm-hmm. and help out with the family business and right. uh, things? Things continue apace in that she gets closer and closer to uh, realizing her dream. Eugenia Derbez begins teaching her more and more. While uh, meanwhile, her father finally stands up to these people who have been underbidding all of these fisheries, and he decides to start a fisherman's co-op for all of the fishermen who live in this little town. Um, the father is played by Troy Kotzer, deaf actor. He is amazingly funny. In this movie, uh, there are all kinds of like family scenes where they're just gathered around a dinner table, joshing each other and insulting each other and making jokes. But it's all in sign uh, achieved with subtitles. That's wonderful. And that they're able to express so much uh, 
just in sign and, and acting is really kind of beautiful and engaging in a way that uh, a dialogue scene wouldn't be. And it's weird that we like, you know, we even have to make note of that mm. because of course it would be. Yeah. But these are conversations that we're not privy to on camera often enough. Mm. You know, this is just not an environment that most movies visit, which sucks. Mm. I haven't seen this movie yet. I've heard good things, but I, I do know of it and that's that's the thing one well mm. one of the things i hope is it works well i'm glad yeah. here it works well uh yeah here it works well you, you this yeah. is a really good film about sort of the family dynamic and the way the family gets along all four of the main family characters uh not just the amelia jones and trey kotzer but uh, marley matlin who mm. plays mom and uh the actor who plays uh the the brother i think his name is daniel durant uh, all four of them together uh, have this really wonderful dynamic and you get this really wonderful idea that they've grown up together and they they yeah. have been a family. They didn't just meet on set that morning. Uh, and after a while, you you become so involved in their family dynamic that even tiny gestures begin to have gigantic emotional punches. There's a lot of really kind of melodramatic beats, of course, you know, uh, racing to a certain location to get somewhere just on time, uh, parents having a change of heart at just the right moment, that sort of thing that you see in uh, you know, very typical kind of Hollywood melodramatic screenplays. But here, they work. They work so unbelievably well uh -huh. to the point where, you know, you're kind of like clutching your chest and reaching for the hankies. It's like, this is kind of... This is kind of beautiful. This is really intense and gorgeous and uh, in, in a way that all Hollywood melodramas ought to be. This is the kind of thing that should come easy and rarely does. And it's it's actually so refreshing to finally see it done well every once in a while. Yeah, we, we take it for granted, this mm. kind of, like, is it melodrama? Mm. I take that for granted a lot because it's so easy to do badly and so many people get away with doing it badly or mm. mediocrely. <laughs> but yeah, every once in a while you, you see a movie that comes along and reminds you that maybe there's a formula to this, but the formula works for a reason. Yeah. And if you just put something like really earnest into it, you can get something really great. Mm. Um, that's really cool, man. Yeah, it's I, I really, really, really highly recommend this one. Okay. It's on Apple TV Plus. Um, it debuted at Sundance. I don't think it's in theaters. Um, I think it's just Apple TV Plus. It's right just now. Apple TV I, Plus. I imagine right now. they're probably doing some kind of like Oscar mm. consideration thing, but Maybe I also so, know that the rules for this year are a little different still because yeah. of the because of COVID, and they don't know what exactly they're reverting back to the theatrical only model, if indeed mm. they ever do. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. So right now it's on Apple Plus. Yeah. Um, the director is named. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Sion Heater is her name. I don't know. And uh, yeah, she she's from Massachusetts, so she's giving the. Uh, the like a lot of local flavor you can always tell when a filmmaker is like familiar with the the set and the location because they you can see a lot of a lot more uh, specific local color leaking its way into the into the story mm. uh that's definitely true here a lot of the details about this fishing village um you know the, the details of how docks work and how fishermen the the day works for a fisherman uh is all very specific and it, it appears to me to be accurate even though I'm not a fisherman uh just everything about this, everything about like the little tiny details, all of the big emotional beats, including the big deliciously corny ending, all just punches down really, not punches down, just punches through yeah. really, really well. It yeah. gets through all of that, that cynical wall of all of these formulas that you're so used to seeing mm. and manages to get under your skin and actually work really well. Um, 
I think all all of these people deserve Academy Awards for their roles. Wow, this is really great. Not just nominations, around. just the like, awards. Like Emilia Jones is really great. I love Troy Kotsur. Um, he's he's sort of the embarrassing dad. He's like the sort of grizzled, bearded guy, uh, who uh, when um, our main character takes a date home to just sort of show him around mm-hmm. her her bedroom, is like, and this is where I live, and uh, we're home alone right now. And then they f- suddenly hear their parents having very noisy sex in the other room. <laughs> They're both deaf, so they can't bang on the door. So you just to like crack the door open and like flick the lights on and off really fast. Like <laughs> I can't do that anymore. I have company here. It's like well, we didn't know. Couldn't couldn't you stop? Have you seen your mom? How am I supposed to stop myself? Like, <laughs> they're they're just like they're fun, 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 hearty, uh, exciting people to be around. And uh, yeah, it, it, they're filmed in in such a wonderful way. That's great. So yeah, really, really highly recommend Coda. All right. Well, uh, moving on, and there's no good segue here. Mm. Uh, because I'm about to talk about a Hong Kong action movie called Raging Fire, <laughs> starring Donnie Yen and directed by uh, the late great Benny Chan. Hmm. Uh, Benny Chan uh, has been working uh, in the action movie industry since the '80s, uh, and he directed a lot of movies. Not a lot of like breakout films in America. Probably his best known films in America are uh, Jackie Chan's Who Am I? Which is uh, mm-hmm. Jackie Chan wakes up with amnesia and he's trying to figure out his identity. And it ends with one of the best climaxes of any Jackie Chan movie, even though the movie itself, not my favorite. Uh, he also did Jackie Chan's New Police Story, which I feel is a bit underrated. The original Police Story movies are like these kind of like unassailable action classics, but uh, the new one got a little overlooked, but I think the movie's really, really great. Um, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer while making his last movie and he wasn't able to... He finished directing it, but he gave it away in post. Mm. So this is his last motion picture. Uh, and um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Formulaic, but pretty cool. Uh, it stars Donnie Yen as a hero cop. Uh, he's got a he's he's got a child on the way. He's trying to do everything by the book. Mm. Uh, he's, uh, at the beginning of the movie, he's ready to do a big drug bust. And he's invited up to uh, have... Lunch with the top brass. They want to see him about something. And it turns out that he had uh, arrested and filed a police report for a rich man's son who had assaulted a police officer. And they're just like, listen, we all we all want this to go away. The police officer who's been assaulted is right here. He's having lunch with us. He doesn't want to press any charges anymore. So we're just going to we're just gonna make this go away. We just want that to be... We, you're cool with that, right? And Donnie Yen's like, I already filed the police report. It's been unfiled. And he's like, well, I should file that again then. Uh, and they're like, you don't want to do that. And then he like asks, he's like, this, it's this giant smorgasbord of food. And he's just like, uh, how much is this tea I've been drinking? And he's just like, yeah, it's like $200,000 a pot. And he's like, okay, I had two sips. Here's $200. I hope that covers it. Good day to you. And he's so they're trying to show that he's a good cop. He'll also beat the shit out of people later without due process, but it's a cop movie. Yeah, that, that, that's what action stars get to do. They get to com- commit acts of violence in the moral right. Again, we need to. It, we we started more in like earnest last year, and we need to stop not like forget to have this conversation about the way that we treat cops in movies. As though, and this is another one of those where it's like, oh, it's internal affairs is like on my ass for all this stuff I've been doing, but doing everything the right way is just so inconvenient when all I have to do is bust down walls and break heads in order to save the day and i'm like yeah there's a reason we don't like do that Mm. 
There's a reason for that, because it's a very slippery slope down to corruption. We've, this is a movie about police corruption. So We, we even eh. saw that in an episode of Batman, like the 66 it, Batman. Yeah. It's like, well, we can leave you alone in the room with the, the, the suspect, Batman, for a few minutes. Yeah. Rough him up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. It's like just common practice. We usually do that. It's the, like a show for kids. I know, but like in the 60s, before Miranda rights were a thing, mm. there, was, there was rampant police corruption. There's Just like there is now, but a different kind. Um... So the plot of the movie is uh, Donnie Yen is trying to capture a new gang of criminals, but the twist is this gang of criminals who killed all... So basically Donnie Yen says no to the corrupt cop fiasco Mm -hmm. at the beginning, and because of that, he's taken off of this big drug bust he was supposed to do tonight, him and his whole team. And they're very pissed. They've been working on this for years. And sure enough, a new gang of criminals comes in in the middle of this drug bust and kills everybody, including all the cops. Hmm. So it's really fucked up. And uh, it turns out that the new game of criminals is all corrupt cops who recently got out of jail. Uh, they were uh, basically told by the top brass, there's a rich guy who's been kidnapped. You need to do literally anything. We will have your back. Doesn't matter what you do. He needs to be rescued before the stock market opens tomorrow. That <laughs> needs to happen. So oh. anything you do, totally legal, just do it, and they end up killing a guy. Oh, jeez. Donnie Yen, who wasn't privy to this deal, sees them do that, testifies against them. Everyone who said, we have your back, doesn't have their back anymore, and now they have been thrown to the wolves. So they spent years in prison. They're all, like, horribly scarred because, like, all the prisoners, the cops in prison. It doesn't go well for them. Hmm. And now they have a long, elaborate plan to go on a crime wave and fuck shit up. It's not a bad premise. It's basically the movie Heat if Robert De Niro was an ex-cop. You might right, notice yeah. that the movie's called Raging Fire. I don't which which, think, ha- which gives off a lot of heat, would I, you say? I would I I this it's not like credited as a remake and enough has changed that it's not, but I'm pretty sure Benny Chan and his and his folks were fans of the movie Heat because mm. there's a lot of that vibe here. Um the movie itself falls back on a lot of cop clichés. It just um, does. There's good cop, bad cop. Yeah. There's a lot of speechifying. Uh, there's like, ah, you can only hold me for 48 hours. And like, you know, that kind of thing is yeah, a plot yeah, point. Yeah. And, uh, you does, know, does, does the chief stand up and say you're off the case? A couple of times. Oh God. Yeah. Like it's, it's really formulaic. And that really is to the movie's detriment. Uh, however, when the action kicks in, holy shit. It's not wall-to-wall action. It's not like the Raid Redemption or anything where it's basically everything is an excuse for a giant action sequence. It's one of those action movies where it's actually like a pretty serious cop story, but whenever the action kicks in, it's supercharged. So, like, there's this really cool bit where, like, Donnie Yen has to, like, talk to, like, a drug kingpin, but he doesn't have anything on him, so he just sort of storms the place by himself, Mm. and uh, he's just surrounded by dudes with, like, knives and sticks, and he's got to find a way to get out of that situation, and that's full of great stunts. There's an amazing motorcycle chase shootout, which does something really interesting that I'm actually surprised I haven't seen more of in action movies and i'm going to struggle to describe this without visual aids but um we're used to in action movies a lot of action happening left to right Mm. we'll call that the x-axis okay there's an action sequence in this movie that takes place almost exclusively on the y-axis from the foreground to the background and vice versa okay it's actually really cool looking it's really cool. It's really dynamic. It's a combination of shootout stuff and car chase stuff. 
And it's a very different way to film an action sequence, and it's very, very it's, nifty, and I highly recommend checking that out, if nothing else. That dynamic you're talking about has uh, come to the fore with the ubiquity of telephones. As yeah. people film things vertically, yeah. they're beginning to uh, rethink the way they use stage depth. shot. Yeah. yeah, use depth. Exactly. Mm. So, like, yeah, there's a lot of that here. That bit's really fucking cool. Um yeah, it ends with a big heat type shootout, which is pretty fucking cool. Mm. It's a it's an above average cop movie, taken down by its formulaic qualities, uh, but it the action is so good that I do recommend you see it. Okay, well, it, if it's one of those things where they're just they're going to pad out the action with a few scenes of exposition, yeah, with the knowledge that we're only here for the action, uh, that can be tolerated. If yeah. if the, if it's so insubstantial uh, that they're and they're using all of their, their energy to focus on the action, then yeah. uh, we understand why we're here. We're here to see right. the action, and but this isn't we're only quite using that. the plot as pretense. This is this isn't quite that. This right. is more um, to, to compare it to like two John Woo movies. Mm. Okay, if you've seen uh, uh, Hard Boiled, mm. Hard Boiled is an excuse for action. The yeah. plot makes no sense whatsoever, except in like the big sweeping broad bullet points. At, well, they're all bullet points. It's John ah, John but Wimley. like, but like, regardless, it's like it's all an excuse to get to the next big setup. The plot really isn't important. That's all it is. It's all mm. mood and tone and a couple of characters, and then shoot, shoot, shoot. Motorcycle blows up in midair. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Mm. Hospital explodes. Like all kinds of crazy shit. But then you get to something like some of his earlier stuff, like A Better Tomorrow, which is more of like a serious cop noir. Mm. But whenever there is a shootout, it does look fucking amazing. Uh, that's more like this. Okay. This is more like a serious cop movie, and that's why it being formulaic does drag it down a bit. I'm not sure I'm going to give it a C plus because of that, but the action is a C plus. Okay, and it's very. It's I've I've seen better action. It's not the greatest action I've ever seen, but it is. I've seen so many American action movies that are getting by with just being fine, or like just like shooting I, I, an action uh, sequence just okay. That to see one where it's like, oh yeah, some people actually do know how to film this right consistently. It's such a breath of fresh air. Mm. It's really great. Yeah. I've seen so many chases and so many action yeah. pictures, and I'm, I'm so bored by them because yeah. it's... It's hard to do them it's, different it's when It's when the movie and the engagement and the story and all of the interesting things about the film stop, and we kind of just sort of give way to a lot of movement, mm -hmm. and uh, that's not so interesting to me. Yeah. So if, if you're going to make an action picture, you really have to go the extra mile. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm not just talking about, like, now. I'm just talking in general. Yeah. Uh, do something utterly spectacular. Yeah. Or don't why, waste my time. That's why I feel like a lot of the best action filmmakers mm. stage their action not like an action sequence. They'll stage it like I don't know, a musical number or a comedy scene. That's one of the brilliant things about Jackie Chan mm. was as he started to come into his own and have more creative control over his projects, he let his comedy influences get bigger and bigger and bigger until he was doing basically elaborate like Harold Buster, Lloyd and Buster yeah. Keaton routines. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you'll see like a lot of... I, I, I think of a, one American filmmaker who actually i think gets it right hmm. is uh um ralph mcquarrie christopher mcquarrie or christopher mcquarrie ralph mcquarrie did the uh or like, the did, star did, wars guy yeah, yeah, um, star wars christopher yes, mcquarrie Chris, who does the mission yeah. impossible films and christopher mcquarrie did rogue nation he did uh uh what was, it, what, was this, what was the other one he did um uh, horse ho, ghost protocol horse, no no ghost protocol horse. was brad bird oh you're right the he the sixth one was fallout i want to say flashpoint it was wrong it's another donnie Yen movie um 
Yeah, he did. Uh, he did that one Jack Reacher movie, and every single time he does an action sequence, he's pushing it, or he's yeah. trying to find a new way to do it. This goes back to his first directorial film, Way of the Gun, which I is a one of the most creative car chases I've ever seen in a movie. It's a I, slow I, speed I, car I need chase. To go I've back never to this movie because you, you bring it up constantly, it's, and it's it's a, it's, it's, it's not it's, one that sticks in my head as well as it the, did with you. It's structurally flawed. All right. It is a structurally flawed motion picture, but there's like two or three set pieces which I would teach in a class. They're just so mm. interestingly put together. There's a slow speed car chase that is incredibly suspenseful. <laughs> and the final shootout is mm. just exquisitely put together. Mm. Um, and a few other things as well. But um, in any case, yeah, that's a filmmaker who is trying to find a way to use the action sequences to tell the story, but also understanding that when the action sequence is here, we're pausing everything to have a wild time mm. and to really see what's happening yeah. and to appreciate yeah. what's happening and understanding what's happening is more exciting than understanding that there was chaos and now the chaos is over, mm. which is something that I think even good American action movies sometimes fall prey yeah, to. Like, I'm looking can... at you, Paul Greengrass, oh, God, Jason Bourne movies. Uh, or even just like a, a lot of those Avengers movies, like yeah. you, you can get up during the action sequence and come back at the at the end of it and not mm-hmm. miss much. Uh, yeah, you know, every once in a while you get a, you'll get an exciting one, but it, like uh, the ending of Ant Man is very clever. No, like, there's when there's like, a few funny bits, yeah. like the, where uh, Thomas the Train becomes a life size train out in the street. All of a sudden, that's pretty yeah. fun. All um, that stuff's really really cool. Yeah. But like, yeah, a lot of times it's just. The, the worst offender of that was the X-Men movies because half of them end with like people like pushing their hands out and like shooting energy at another person <laughs> and then that person yeah. shoots a different color energy back and, then, and like the, the two energies meet in the middle going, and they're just Aah! blasting at each other. Yeah, like you're really constipated. Like it's, it's the stupidest crap. I hate it so much. Uh, but no, but anyway, I digress. Uh, mm. Formula action movie with really good, uh, Formula cop movie with really good action. Mm. Uh, I, I did like it. Okay. But it's not, uh, it, alas, it's not like one last great classic from right. Betty Chan. Uh, and then uh, lastly, Days. Uh, speaking of action-packed blockbusters. Ooh. Um, this is the latest film from uh, Tsai Ming Lang, uh, who is a Taiwanese film director. And uh, I had always been uh, sort of familiar with the name. It's been floated around a, a lot of critical circles, but I only really discovered Tsai Ming Lang this year, uh, largely thanks to uh, the other podcast I do with B. Peterson, All About Ovid, because mm. there were a few Simon Lang films on that platform, uh, including uh, his first, Rebels of the Neon God, mm. which is a film he made back in the 90s and is excellent. Uh, mm. Also, The Hole, which is one he made in 99 and is also excellent. Uh, I saw a film of his recently, which is um, a conversation between he and uh, Lee Kang Shang an actor who has appeared in all of his movies, including this one, Days. Uh, and now he, this is uh, his latest one, and this is... Uh, Timing Wang, if you're not familiar with him, uh, deals with... A, uh, oh, and all, excuse me, the other film of his I saw was Goodbye, Dragon Anne, mm. which is maybe one of the best films about films and about movie theaters and about you know the poetry of going to a cinema. Uh, Simon Lang's films all deal with disconnect. They're all about loneliness. His characters tend to live in crowded spaces, but are desperate to connect to another person in some sort of profound way. Mm. Uh, and the little tiny conversations people can have, Simon Lang tends to film them as 
weird miniature catharses that actually are the very fabric of life. Uh, Days begins with a shot of uh, his lead actor, Link Hengsheng, sitting in a chair, Mm. looking out on rain. Rain is a big mm. recurring motif. Uh, there's a lot of, da- and Simon mm. Lang's films, there's a lot of dampness, a lot of flooded spaces. Yeah. And he is sitting there, he's kind of expressionless, very stone-faced, and we just sort of hear the water. It's a single static shot, and it lasts about five minutes. And something about the way Simon Lang has framed that shot, and the way the, the part is played, we are now in the space with him. And we are feeling his loneliness. There's a shot of him in a tub that lasts a long time. Uh, Then we cut to a different character uh, who's played by an actor named Anong Huanghuang Si. And he uh, is seen uh, in an equally kind of drab interior everything looks a little bit run down, like paint peels, the walls are cracked in Simon Lang's films, and he's preparing dinner. He prepares vegetables uh, in what appears to be real time. He's like, mm. you know, picking beans and he's yeah. uh, shaving we're in no vegetables. Rush. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just sort of in the space with him. And these two characters uh, are alone. Uh, the centerpiece of the film is when they meet. They meet in a, a hotel room, pretty drab hotel room, uh, and the uh, Li Kang Sheng character uh, lays on a bed naked and he gets a massage, which starts out sort of therapeutic and turns very sexual by the end. And it's, again, it's like two incredibly long, single sustained shots where we get to see the, the flow of their, their sexual encounter, uh, the, uh, these two men in this hotel room. And... This is clearly a financial transaction, but there's something very humane and humanly intimate happening between these two characters. And uh, when they finished, uh, the Li Kang Sheng character gives uh, the other character a music box. Now, and he, like a, one of those little ones with a little crank and you crank yeah. it and you listen to a little tune. Uh, I, I had to look it up, but the tune that they play is the theme song to the Charlie Chaplin movie Limelight. Oh, okay. so uh, we get a little bit of, that's no, it's not, that's not smile. That's from an mm-hmm. earlier, uh, tablet film. General yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it's not a film I've seen, but, okay. uh, I, I looked up a little bit about Limelight and evidently loneliness is a big theme of that movie as well. Yeah. Uh, the production was very, very long on this, uh, and Simon Lang, however, really wanted to uh, sort of explore something that's incredibly valuable about life in the big city, and that is that sort of disaffection, this this uh, disconnect we have from the people around us, and how these connections that we make, however uh, casual or sexual or financially motivated they might be... Uh, can fold us together in eternal and profound ways. Days is a work of extreme beauty. It is, however, also... uh, It's a test. (laughs) Because Mm. there are a lot of sustained still shots of someone asleep in a bed. 
They're mm. asleep. There's no action whatsoever. There's no music. And we just have single static shots of what it is to be in these spaces. Yeah. And I appreciate a filmmaker who is willing to create the space and let us sit in it for a while. Yeah. Let us have these areas where we can exist and feel and contemplate and meditate and get into a new kind of uh, emotional heart space. Um, Timing Lang is maybe one of the great masters. He, uh, one might, I've talked a lot this year about Olaf Diaz, another uh, filmmaker. He's a Filipino filmmaker and he's known for uh, slow cinema. Right. Uh, and I read an article recently about how slow cinema doesn't tend to come out of the United States mm-hmm. and how geography might have a lot to do with the kinds of pacing in the stories we tell. Mm. America is very, uh, is very devoted to hustle. There's a lot of movement, a lot of action. We're, we're sort of yeah. uh, just culturally addicted to big moments and, and forward momentum and change. Yeah. Uh, whereas in other parts of the world, maybe less so. So we're getting slow cinema from outside of this country. Well, it kind of makes sense that like when we do mm. create something in America that does feel maybe not slow cinema, but on the slower side, it tends to be more pastoral. Yeah. So you get some like Terrence Malick, for instance, something that feels uh, more rural most of the time. uh, And and where's Terrence Malick from? He's from rural Texas. So his, his his geography has like, definitely informs uh, what he tells his stories about. Yeah. I wouldn't call Timing Lang like, one of those slow cinema filmmakers, but this is as close as he's ever come. Well, you can use the, you can use the same techniques or similar techniques Mm. to evoke things without just doing that thing. Mm. Like Guy Madden evokes silent cinema, even when he's not making silent cinema, Mm. you know, he's not making, he's not a silent filmmaker, but he's using those techniques to create a specific effect. That, that film stock, the intertitles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Those visual effects. Exactly. So, yeah, if he's using those elements in a slightly different way, fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you uh, saw yeah. some good movies this week. Yeah, they they were all pretty good this week. Nice. Um, I really, really loved Days, and I really, Ooh. really loved Coda. I, I, I recommend both of those. I did not have a. I mean, it okay, but like, all right, let's let's, let's review some movies. Mm. So, uh, at the end of every episode, we review our movies on the critically acclaimed scale, just in case. You weren't entirely sure where we landed on them. Our critically acclaimed scale runs from C- to C+. Most movies are a C. You've been to school. A C is average. C- is below average. That's everything from we just kind of don't recommend it to the worst movie ever made. And C- is above average, which is everything from we just recommend it to this is the greatest movie of all time. Mm. On that note, Days. Days is, is a C plus. Nice. Please seek this out. It's one of the, the more impressive cinema achievements you'll see this year. Wow. It's going to take a, a lot of patience. Okay. It's going to take a lot of it engagement. Again? It's it's a little over two hours. Okay, so it's not it's it's not one of those five hour monsters. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, yeah. the time commitment. Yeah. Okay. Um all right. Uh Raging Fire. Uh, it's a very high C. Uh the oh, yeah. fact that it feels like, you know, eight other really good cop movies draws it down a little bit and it's kind of unaware of it's like central hypocrisy because it's trying to evoke those very western motifs but uh when it works it works really well and the action kicks ass mm. so 
Um, I definitely can't give it a bad review, but it's definitely something holding back from making it truly awesome. But if you like cop movies, if you like action movies, I do recommend checking it out. It's a cool watch. Mm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Coda. Coda, also C+. Okay. Um, I, I was kind of raving about it a little bit. Um, but yeah, I really, really loved Coda. This, mm. this is Hollywood melodrama in a lot of ways, but it gives us a new angle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives us... A, and, and it just does everything correctly, and yeah. that's that's refreshing and grand in its own way. So yeah, yeah C plus. Uh, Don't breathe. Mm. Two is a C minus. Uh, it's not without its finer qualities. Again, I think the cast is very very good. It looks very very good. There's some cool exciting bits in it, but it's all revolving around an idea that unfortunately isn't very well developed. Mm. They seem to want to take the villain and make him the hero without really doing the work or rather maybe it was misguided and this guy is just too difficult to turn into a proper hero Mm. uh even under the film's own terms which are still really really dark so um it's a misfire maybe an interesting misfire but i don't think it's effective and that's a damn shame because Mm. i still think the original is terrifying and then lastly free guy uh free guy uh, a high c okay uh it's yeah this is frustratingly not as deep as it could have been. I wanted it to go like a, a little bit more Star Trek in terms of its plot and its grandness, but uh, uh, it's it's still a fun watch. It's actually incredibly genial and energetic and really, really funny. Uh, yeah. Right. You could do a lot less worse with your time. Um, I know that's not a, not a, a put, useful statement. Whatsoever. Put it on the poster. Yeah. You could do a lot less worse <laughs> with your time. Uh, Whitney Seibold. Uh yeah, that's it. So thank you everybody for listening to Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with more movie reviews. Mm. What's coming out next week? There's that new Hugh Jackman psychological thing, Reminiscence. The Reminiscence, yeah, science fiction thing yeah. about uh, it's like total recall, yeah. playing with uh, memories. A couple new horror films from Neil Blomkamp mm. and uh, David Bruckner. Um, and I think and Paw I think, Patrol. And I think Paw Patrol is coming out next. Paw Patrol, week, so. which has really good reviews so far. I'm going to see that Paw Patrol movie. Really, this. really good reviews. I'm familiar. It was 100% with 100 Rotten Tomatoes for a while. It might still be. Well, okay. Well, we'll, right. well, let's let's see. Yeah. One that ra- it, that rarest of things, a G-rated film. So let's see what they yeah. what the G rating. It'd be nice if it's days. great. Maybe it sucks. We'll have to check it out. But um, anyway, interesting. Um, and maybe other things besides. And um, yeah. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you want to help out the show, you can, of course, uh, subscribe, leave us a review. Uh, That always helps us in the algorithm. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a lot of exclusive shows about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards. We just released a commentary track for the two-part Simpsons episode, Who Shot Mr. Burns? We also have a crossover episode with our friends at Linoleum Knife. If you head on over to the Linoleum Knife podcast, that's uh, Dave White and Alonzo Duralde, two of the best film critics in the world. That is not an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. It's weird that they let us do podcasts with them sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, indeed, uh, Dave White, one of the hosts, was on an episode of All About Ovid talking about Siming Lang with uh, with B and I. So the impeccable taste. So yeah. Uh, so uh, l- listen to that episode too. Yeah. You hear us talk more about Siming Lang. Uh, but we had a crossover episode with them on our Patreon last month and this month we have a crossover episode on their Patreon over at Linoleum Knife. Uh, and uh, in this case Alonzo and I uh, dragged Whitney and Dave kicking and screaming uh, to watch uh, the latest Hannah Swenson uh, bakery murder movie over at Hallmark. Uh, and um, we weren't we weren't really kicking and screaming. We were just sort of 
dragging our feet with our heads lowered. You know, you know what as, you're in. As, you, you know this is what you, you sign up for. As you thrashed us about the back with your whips, get in there, get and watch those movies. Uh, but we it's, actually had a fun conversation about this one. Comforting and has cookies in it. <laughs> you poor, you poor soul. You had to be comforted and be reminded that cookies are nice. You, oh, you God. horrible. It, hurt, it hurts so bad. You poor creature. <laughs> Whatever shall you do? Um, trickly, trickly warmth. It's like drinking molten Hummel figurines. Anyway, it's a funny, it's a fun, funny episode, and I think it's available uh, as of when this uh, podcast is up. Uh, so please head on over there to check that out. That's on their Patreon page. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, don't forget, if you want to hear Whitney talk about uh, more artsy-fartsy stuff of the highest caliber. <laughs> okay, artsy. Double what? double artsy and twice as fartsy. Uh, you can check out All About Ovid, which oh. he hosts with the uh, great B. Peterson. Where can they find that? Uh, that's, I, I think it's just on the, the Patreon page. Although um, a B has been releasing all of the patreon exclusive content just out in public mm-hmm. just so more people can hear it um yeah but yeah it's uh, patreon.com slash uh the screen's margins that's mm. the name of the of b's mm. network and yeah we've been yeah. talking about just whatever we get to on all of it. our last episode yeah. was about patricio guzman chilean filmmaker nice that's great mm. um and of course we also have a soap store Salt Cat Soap over on Etsy. We have a bunch of new designs for this month. Someone pointed out, and I feel ridiculous for not thinking about this, considering I'm supposed to be like the geeky one. One of our soaps for this month looks just like the Tesseract from, from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So you can get a Tesseract soap, and it smells great. Did they uh, ever call it the Cosmic Cube? Because that's what they called it in the movie. In I know. The comic it's books. I always thought there was a nice they, they poetry it... to the Cosmic Cube, but um, I feel like they maybe mentioned it once. Cosmic Cube feels like a placeholder. Like they just drew a cube. With like mm-hmm. you got to think of like whatever the widget was later. And then they just decided to go with the cube. There's something kind of pure about a cube. You know, it's like a very simple, very powerful yeah, geometric, geometric image. Of... And a Tesseract, I don't even know what that looks like. It's not a cube. Mm-hmm. It's not a cube. In, not, in the movies, it is a cube. It's I know, a, but it's yeah. not supposed to be a cube. Don't, don't they break it open and there's something inside? Or no, you're thinking of the mind later? gem. It okay. was like there was like uh, the Loki staff had the mind gem and they had to crack it open and there was a thing. Oh, okay. Oh, I, maybe no, you're right because there was actually like with, that's how it fit on the Thanos's glove. You're right. That's I'm, right. There was like there was like a, a little yeah. thing inside. Crunch, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a little. It's a free, with your free prize inside. I, I know a lot of people watch those movies repeatedly, so there's a lot of details that are really well known to a large contingent of. Of mm-hmm. those movies fans that I just have no memory of whatsoever because yeah. I've seen the movies once I don't, yeah. I don't go back and watch those films that's fine I've seen a couple so, more than once but mostly no so I, I you know I, I recall little details from here and there like somebody at some point crushed a, a glowing cube and there was a little smaller thing inside and fine. that's all I remember it's good times Doctor Strange crushed a cube and killed Vision <laughs> Sure. I remember that scene. I remember where, where right. the, I don't the think it was Doctor head, Strange who did it, but anyway. the robot's head got crushed. That was, the that was did, pretty cool. It was fun for everybody. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so that's it for for critically acclaimed this week. Thank you everybody for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry. What? <laughs>